If I could have just a couple minutes of your time before we begin today's episode, I'd like to let you all in on an update on the future of the show. Thank you all for continuing to download and listen. I am humbled, truly, by the numbers I'm seeing and am encouraged by the growth we're seeing. I'm going to break norms and ask a big favor, though. I'm hoping to get up to 250 subscribers by the end of the year. To start 2021 with that goal having been met would be a great place to begin to make goals for exponential growth throughout the next year. Like, like big goals. And in order to meet big goals, big changes need to be made, which will only enhance the listener's experience in each episode. Your experience. The story of the late Middle Ages, the, the building blocks to our modern world, deserves to be told, and it deserves to be told in the way in which it happened. That is, not compartmentalized into subjects and geographic locations and cultural groups. Our history is fluid, and each of these areas and, and cultures and communities, these historical tributaries all flow into one another, creating this rainforest of diversity and experiences that eventually flow into our present moment, this ocean we're swimming in today. So what can you do? Well, the first and easiest and cheapest thing to do is to share the show. In spoken word or on social media, share the show. You can find us easily on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast, and Twitter, at Wheel Podcast. Also, it's not a cliche to say that your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and any other podcast service you use to listen, well, they matter more than you know, like more than I knew before I even started this podcast. A simple four or five star rating along with a simple one or two sentence review, and please hear me on this, catapults a podcast toward the top of the list a podcast falls under. This simple one-time action on your part will pay off dividends as it puts it front and center when people search for history podcasts. And in the meantime, if you're able and you're willing, Fortune's Wheel also has an option to support the show directly. Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows a listener to support the show's content creation. To become an official patron of Fortune's Wheel, there's a $3 a month option which gives you early access to episodes as well as a shout out for your support on the show. To begin an all access patron, there is a $5 a month option that earns you early access to episodes, an on air shout out, as well as a monthly AMA or Ask Me Anything episode and any bonus episode published. And to become a VIP patron, a $15 a month option will give you all of those benefits, plus the ability to request episodes and topics of interest pertaining to the content of the podcast and exclusive content, such as interviews with authors and historians and even other podcasters, which I've already started the process of creating. And a quick note about bonus episodes. As of January 1st, 2021, all bonus episodes will be published exclusively for Patreon supporters. These episodes will be specifically designed to enhance the listener's experience, whether it's an episode on the medieval mind, you know, deep diving into Neoplatonism, or it's an interview episode. I plan to make these episodes more than just extra information. And if even $3 a month is 
just not feasible for you, believe me, there is no judgment whatsoever. Patreon also allows a customizable donation option as well. But again, simply sharing the show and hitting that subscribe button and reviewing it does wonders. So let's get this show rolling even faster and open the world's eyes to history as it should be taught through the multiple lenses in the multiple places that emphasizes the interconnectivity that runs through the veins of our shared human history. I have a thousand ideas to enhance the show, but let's be honest, as with any big idea, you can't do it alone. If you enjoy the content, if you appreciate the interconnectivity of cultures and peoples and events in our, in our shared story, if you feel this podcast and its creator deserve the chance to be heard, please consider doing what you can to help. The 16th century English poet John Donne would never have uttered the phrase, no man is an island, without the events in the minds of the Middle Ages. But he did, thanks to this very story I'm trying to tell. And it rings true today, I am not an island. I'm asking for your support. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your consideration. This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 20, Tancred the Fertile. Today we begin a longer series leading up to 1066, the year of monumental change throughout the continent. If 1066 was the effect, then 1035 was, at its core, the cause of this change. A lot will happen in the intervening three decades and we will travel the breadth of Europe to explain what on its surface seems like an isolated event on an isolated island, isolated in the far north. but. But the Norman Conquest is anything but an isolated event. In this series of episodes, we will ride with knights. We will see the imprisonment of a pope. We will witness the stirrings of a naval superpower. We'll serve in the most elite fighting force of the medieval era. And we'll watch dynasties fall while others rise. We will attend services in the medieval wonder of the world. We will travel the majestic expanses of modern-day Ukraine, Hungary, and Poland. Follow a, a once-shunned family, resurrect itself to ascend to the throne of England, and trace an orphan's path from ridiculed duke to conqueror. Every epic begins somewhere, usually with a shocking event. This shocking event is two deaths mere months apart that rip a hole in the fabric of expectation in Europe that won't be sutured together for at least three decades. I'm not sure if I shared it already, but the previous season, our first season, was intended to set the scene for this very series of events between the years 1035 and 1066, and I titled that first season as The Slow Death of the Viking Age. We will continue this thread in the next season, season two, by tracking not necessarily a death, as many historians have described it, but rather 
as an evolution of the Viking legacy. And ones to take center stage in this evolution will be former Vikings we call the Normans. Season two will focus on Europe, reeling in the wake of their unstoppable march as they bring empires to their knees, destroy others completely, and even create their own. This season will be titled, Here Come the Normans. I hope you enjoy the show. I think it's time we take a big step back and see exactly what's at play by the end of 1035. Specifically in Northern Europe, Duke Robert I of Normandy died on July 3rd, followed shortly afterward by King Canute II, King of the North Sea Empire that, as we've said before on the podcast, included England, Denmark, Norway, and western parts of Sweden, as well as an overlordship of much of modern-day Scotland and the Isle of Man, along with major influence over the Kingdom of Dublin. With the deaths of men with names such as Robert le Magnifique and Canute the Great, well, there were bound to be social, political, military, and economic tsunamis in their wakes. But let's for a moment take a closer look at the immediate results of these deaths, which we will flesh out in more detail in future episodes. As for Duke Robert, his death ushered in a massive power grab throughout the duchy, as his vassals were just waiting on such an opportunity to take land, influence, and power. Normandy was a duchy that began welding an incredible amount of influence in early Capetian France under Duke Robert I. And when he died, its proclaimed leader turned out to be an eight-year-old boy a boy born out of wedlock and by a peasant to boot. Every single odd was set against this boy gaining order in the duchy, let alone surviving. And as for England, well, Canute was its king, and the Witan would surely elect another king in normal circumstances. But, you know, Canute was married to Emma, who bore him a son, Hartha Canute, who is currently a regent of, the, of the, his Denmark. Seems pretty clear and simple, right? No. Actually, no, it's not. These are not normal circumstances, as Canute, before Emma, was married to a Northumbrian lady named Elfgifu, who bore him two sons, Swain, who is currently wreaking havoc as regent in Norway, and Harold Harefoot, who was, as far as I can tell, hanging out somewhere semi-safe in Mercia, in central England. If choosing between these three wasn't confusing enough, Emma, Queen of England before becoming well, you know, Queen of England again to Canute, had two sons to the previous King Ethelred. Yeah, there are two more players in this succession crisis, named Edward and Alfred, being raised for years, at this point, in Normandy. One would think, well, it still doesn't have to be that complicated. I mean, Edward is the eldest of them all, and he's the son of the Saxon king before Canute, so the crown should naturally revert back to, or back as his mother is still connected to the throne of England, right? But no, again, it's not that simple. As when Emma negotiated her marriage with Canute, 
she stipulated that any son born by Canute and her would automatically have the first claim to the throne. Okay, so, Hartha Canute, it's you, buddy. But Hartha Canute never showed up, and Edward seemed less than eager to return and claim the throne, leaving Alfred, Swain, and Harold Harefoot. Well, Swain died somewhere in there. Okay, this is good. We're whittling it all down here to Harold, Harefoot, and Alfred. But Hartha Canute in Denmark still has claim, though. Listen, I don't want to jump the gun here too much, but if you're confused by all that, well, think about what the English and the Danish and the Norwegians and the Normans were all thinking. You're right to be confused. There was no clear answer. Not one. And we all know what's coming down the pipeline, so let's just say it. Normandy will not only invade England, again, but it will also succeed in conquering it. But that's not for another 33 years. Well, see, this is where history is so interesting. The events that directly and indirectly impact the Norman conquest of England in 1066 can be found as far off as Sicily and Constantinople and even Novgorod. So let's see what's happening elsewhere before we settle in on one family who will usher in these events. At this point, we're all well aware of the North Sea Empire, you know, teetering on the brink. So let's go ahead and head south first. King Henry I has been ruler of France for four years upon the death of his Duke of Normandy, Robert I. Henry, at this point, is poised to help out that eight-year-old heir to the duchy in the coming years. In the meantime, he would face mounting pressure of his own succession crisis in the coming years when in 1034... His betrothal to the daughter of Conrad II, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, fell apart when she died. He then married Matilda of Frisia, though she would die in nine years, without an heir still. Stay tuned for how that turns out, but suffice it to say, for now, in 1035, France is fairly stable. I would say fairly stable, though its duchies are beginning to exercise more power and even more influence than any king would be comfortable with. If we, if we head southwest toward the Iberian Peninsula, where today we find Spain and Portugal, we find five Christian kingdoms and one Muslim one. They will soon have their own chapter in the progression of European history, but for now, it's the largest kingdom, Leon, leading the way in instigating change, which will eventually oust the Muslim Cordoba Caliphate, followed by Castile, Navarre, Aragon, and Barcelona. Follow this path south, we cross the Pillar of Hercules across to the, to the African continent, where the Muslim Fatimid Caliphate held sway for the entire expanse of northern Africa. This caliphate would stretch from the Atlantic to the Holy Land, including the large, bountiful island of Sicily, right smack in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Speaking of the Mediterranean... Though the Balearic Islands were under direct influence of the Cordoba Caliphate, Sardinia was enjoying a very short respite of independence, but that was most likely due more to the lack of enforcement rather than Sardinian defiance. Back on the mainland, sandwiched between the Kingdom of France and the Italian boot, was the Kingdom of Burgundy. And just north of them was the Holy Roman Empire, which on its face stretched from the North Sea to the Mezzogiorno in Italy. 
But it's not that simple. As something called the Papal States began amassing more and more power centering around Rome and all the way across to Ravenna. Tucked into the Adriatic Sea along the marshy coastline pockmarked with islands was the Venetian Republic, a small but influential maritime empire that will play huge roles in the coming centuries in Mediterranean politics. Poland was in its first generation as a, you know, a semi-organized polity under the supervision of the Holy Roman Empire. Hungary had also recently just gained its sovereignty as a Christian king led, led the way too. The Rus had established themselves from the Baltic Sea south down to the myriad of rivers leading to the Black Sea, eventually to the gem of the medieval world, Constantinople. And finally... Speaking of Constantinople, a city we will probably spend quite a bit of time visiting from time to time during this, this series, well, pretty much the entire podcast, well, Constantinople was picking itself up by its bootstraps under the leadership of their beloved, though absent, emperor, Basil II, who spent most of his long reign crisscrossing the kingdom of Bulgaria just north of Greece who had for more than a century pestered and battered and controlled the empire's northern and northwestern borders. Basil II would rightfully earn the nickname Basil the Bulgar Slayer for his work subduing and extinguishing the Bulgarian threat. Now that was quite a whirlwind tour of Europe while Ethelred, well, Ethelredded his kingdom away and Canute took control in the north. If anything, this little overview should emphasize the idea that despite what historians have kind of told us along the way, man, Europe was alive and Europe was changing, like like all at once, it seems like. And this widespread change was the world where we begin this season of the podcast. It's said that the first Normans to be documented traveling through Italy is a group of Norman knights coming back from the Holy Land. Stopping at a sacred cave, said to have been the place where the Archangel Michael slept near modern-day Folgia, Italy, in what can be described as that, you know, that spur on the heel of Italy's boot, these Normans were the guests of Prince Guyamar III in Salerno. They were currently being extorted, the, the, the people from Salerno, they were currently being extorted by the African Saracens. And by the way, Saracens, which you'll hear probably more and more of in this series, uh, certainly, Saracens was the term used in the Middle Ages by the scribes, Christian scribes, for Arab Muslims. Okay. And in true Norman fashion, see the these visitors <laughs> passing through, they had a really good laugh at the prince's expense. This wasn't received well, but really... Do we really think the Normans were bothered that they weren't that they were increasingly wearing out their welcome? Instead, a proposal was made, and before the Saracens realized it, they were facing down a, a rather hefty contingent of Norman knights. The tribute that the prince was collecting was funneled to the Normans in exchange for a message to be sent to the Saracens back in Africa. You mess with them, you mess with us. Okay, but let's not kid ourselves, though. The Normans were hardly acting out of some, I don't know, Christian compassion for their fellow believers, you know? No, this was business. Plain and simple, business. Now, no one really knows when this occurred, but the best estimates are maybe as early as 999. 
Another account written by a Norman chronicler named William of Apulia, many, many decades later, showed the first Norman contingent in southern Italy was in 1016, when a band of Normans were returning from the Holy Land, the same type of pilgrimage that Duke Robert I would die on 19 years later. These Normans stopped at a cave, Monte Gargano, that was rumored to be the place where, and stop me if you've heard this one before, the Archangel Michael slept. While there, they were approached by a Lombard named Melis of Bari, whose people were suffering terribly under the oppressive rule of the Eastern Roman Empire. Well, as we know, Vikings were skilled fighters and great negotiators, and these traits never left the Normans. The only adjustment to them, really, is their fighting skills shifted from predominantly hand-to-hand -hand combat expertise into a dominant cavalry force, but believe me, you wouldn't want to go hand-to-hand -hand with them either. And for the right price, these Lombards could hire their services. And they did. And these Normans joined the current Lombard uprising against the Byzantines. Honestly, no one really knows, though. There, were, there are several accounts of the first Normans in southern Italy, but these are the two that I continue to run into in my studies. But that's no guarantee of, of their veracity, though. The one thing I can count on is that every story I've read about it centers on Normans visiting south-central Italy, a place called Mezzogiorno, as we said before, and they were hired as mercenaries against a common enemy. No matter the truth, stories trickled back to Normandy of these fierce mercenaries who were making serious bank in the tumultuous Mediterranean region. These stories would be circulated and eventually make their way to the table of a minor Norman noble. We don't really know much of anything about this minor Norman noble, except that he was an extremely pious man who couldn't stomach the thought of, well extinguishing his carnal desires with just anyone. When his first wife died, he insisted he marry again and would cement his place as one of the most fertile men of his day, not to mention the father of dynasties. So who was this guy? His name was Tancred, and he was a vassal of the Duke of Normandy. An exceptionally decent man, he would see 12 sons as well as maybe a handful of daughters to adulthood, which is, it's just an astonishing feat for the time, that many children uh, making it to adulthood. He would raise them on his ancestral home in Cotentin, which is a peninsula in western Normandy along the English Channel, kind of juts out into the channel. It's said his land was given to his grandfather, Hialtus, by Rollo himself when Normandy was first established. So Tancred's roots ran pretty deep. Hialtus built his estate atop a hill, which earned it the name Hauteville, or High Estate or High Town. Tancred is known to history as Tancred de Hauteville, and his sons would listen to stories from all over Normandy growing up, which was experiencing another round of upheavals in the 1020s with the ascension to the dukedom of Robert I over his brother Richard III. We've been all over that. So when Robert I took over Normandy, he, as we've learned, pretty much thumbed his nose up at anyone who questioned him. The duchy was already rowdy, and though Duke Robert would quell much of this unrest, these tensions would only hibernate until his death in 1035. Everyone knew it, too. As long as Robert was in charge, Normandy was subdued. Well, shoot, even the King of France knew his role in Robert's eight years of rule. 
But as we know from both history, yes, and current events, hibernating tensions are hardly a white flag of peace and tolerance. No, hibernating tensions would erupt one day. It was only a matter of time. Tancred and his boys must have known this, and these stories of conquest and adventure and riches by fellow Normans in southern Italy must have been a closely guarded dream of theirs. Though Papa Tancred would never leave Cotentin, many of his sons would. Tancred, as mentioned already, was married twice. His first wife, Muriella, would bear him boys by the names of Serlo, William, Drogo, Humphrey, and Geoffrey, all before her death, around 1015. She would also give him one daughter that we know of named Beatrix, who would one day unite the Hautevilles to the Count of Eu by marriage. Spoiler, William, Drogo, and Humphrey would leave, while Geoffrey would stay as Lord in Hauteville, and in 1041, upon the death of Tancred, Serlo would become Serlo I and assume the role of his father, Signor of Hauteville. His second wife, whom he married fairly quickly after the death of Muriella, we know this because the ages of his sons from this marriage, would their, their births would have to be around 1015 or so. Her name was Fresenda, and she would add seven more sons to, to Tancred's growing basketball team, and at least one more daughter that we know of. The eldest of these boys was Robert, followed by a son named Moget, a son named William, yes, another William in the family, sons Aubrey, Humbert, and Tancred, who would remain as lords in Hauteville along with Serlo and Geoffrey from Muriella, a son Roger, and a daughter named uh, after mom, Fresenda, who would later marry the Count of Capua, Robert Drengo, thus unifying southern Italy in a tighter familial bond, but that's not until much later. This dynasty would begin again over the dinner table while Emma negotiated a peaceful transfer of power from Saxon queen to Danish queen under King Canute in England. And this dynasty would begin to unfold while Emma and Elfgifu of Northumbria fought this, uh, this, this proxy war over the throne of England, and young William I began his long and grueling march toward greatness. By the time William the Bastard would become William the Conqueror, this rowdy bunch of Norman brothers would have established a strong grip over much of Italy, all of Sicily, and even shake the very ground that Constantinople stood upon. Very little is known about Tancred de Hauteville except the names and achievements of his children. And the first two Hautevilles who stepped foot in Italy were William and Drogo. They sought what any Norman sought, wealth and fame. But there was something they realized when they got there. See, Italy was still in a if you could believe it, a tailspin from the fall of the Roman Empire some six centuries earlier. Rome had a fraction of its once dense population. War and famine and instability had caused an untold number of Italians to die in the intervening centuries, which only created a, a situation not too dissimilar from a real-life game of blind frogger on the Audubon. One misstep, one misstep could cost you a fortune your land, or even your life. The political chess being played in medieval Italy often had the results of a round of Russian roulette, and if you toss in the Lombards trying to gain traction, and then 
the embattled succession crisis around the year 1000 with this, you know, new Bavarian king seeking the Pope's blessing and then the title of Holy Roman Empire. Well, man, this was, this was like a playground for folks like the Normans. Loyalties were thin and fortunes could be made and lost, you know, playing the sides against one another. Italy, essentially, was a pressure cooker, ready to explode, and the Normans would position themselves to be the ones who would piece it back together, forcefully if necessary. William and Drogo rode in with a small contingency of knights and tail. They would follow the money, often fighting the very forces they had agreed to help just months or weeks earlier. They would side with the Byzantines, the Lombards, the Pope, all without batting an eye. And they would usher in an age of undeniable Norman supremacy. And each of their benefactors would require them to do something, even if it's just eradicate this enemy. See, the Pope wished the Lombards would just shut up already, and the Muslims to just leave Sicily. The Lombards wanted the legacy of their forefathers to reemerge and the Romans to tremble in their wake. And the Byzantines, which this is worth saying right now, they still considered, considered themselves Romans. They called themselves Romans. Okay, they never once referred to themselves as Byzantines while the empire existed. That's not a name that would come for centuries. So, so the Byzantines, though, wanted to secure Rome once again, the cultural ancestral home, and create a unified Christian empire under the emperor in Constantinople, with the blessing of the Pope. I mean, there was a lot at play going on in Italy in the year, you know, in the 11th century. William and Drogo, they smelled this out miles away, and they would capitalize on the instability like few men have ever done before. After mere months, they would welcome hundreds of Norman knights looking for wealth and glory. But they would also welcome their brothers to join them in their conquest of southern Italy. Listen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode setting up the Norman conquest of southern Italy and Sicily. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and your social media accounts. And don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast, or even drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I'd love to hear from you, really. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show on Patreon if you are so inclined. On the next episode, we're going to take a deeper look into William and Drogo's initial adventures, how their work laid the groundwork for future expansions throughout Italy. This series, man, it's going to cover many different lands and many different peoples. So there's a bit of jumping around to be prepared for from episode to episode. But again, I will stress that history is not linear. Stories are complex. And when studied in their full complexity and, and not compartmentalized into, you know, quote unquote, units of study, so to speak, one can see the wide ranging effects everything and everyone has on everything and everyone else. So next week... We travel to Italy. I can't wait to tell you about it.